Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Yeah, hey, good morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Man, um, what a joy to be with you this morning. I want to say good morning to our Mercy Northeast family. I love you guys and uh, to you as well here at Providence Road. Listen, before I jump into our text today, I do want you to know we have something we call Starting Point. It happens uh, first Sunday of most months, and it's happening this morning immediately after our service at both of our campuses. So whether you're worshiping there at Northeast or here at Providence Road, we'd love for you to stick around. It's basically just like a 20 minute orientation into who we are as a church, what we're about, and maybe that's your next step. You've been around for a little bit, time to take a next step because we believe local church matters. And so we hope that you'll stick around, uh, meet some of our leaders and hear what we're all about. And that's also an invitation to you that are watching online. We're grateful that we can serve you this way, but we hope, we hope, we hope that you'll find a time and begin to make your transition into a local body of believers. And if you're here in the Charlotte area, we hope that's us, all right? All right, with that said, we got some work to do, y'all. So Philippians chapter one, you got your Bible, get it out. Philippians chapter one, we are gonna start in verse 12 and we're gonna make our way to the end of the chapter. And I gotta tell you, man, this passage of scripture has a very timely, very important message uh, in it for us. Our author is the Apostle Paul. We talked about this last week. Uh, Paul is the one who planted the church in Philippi, the first church in Europe, right? So he plants it and then he leaves. And now, a little while later, he's in a Roman jail and he's writing back to them to encourage them just with some things that he's observing for them. And I am completely certain this message in this part, and I think the thesis for the whole letter is in this part. Um, I think it's God's message for mercy right now. Because he's going to look at this young church in Philippi that's in a religiously pluralistic society, and he's going to say, listen, you got one job. Now, personally, I just love the one job thing. I love the one job fails. We all love the one job fails, right? Uh, saw a sign in the grocery store the other day. Uh, and it was where the bananas are, okay? I would feel like that's a fruit that everybody knows what it is, right? But the thing said, you know, 79 cents a pound, long yellow things. And I'm like, yeah, one job, man. Just right, bananas, what in the world are you doing? Um, well, here, the Apostle Paul is gonna give the church one job. Now, the great thing is, Instead of when the church is going to fail at it, you're going to fail at it. I'm going to fail at it time and time again. And that's okay. Instead of being laughed at, God the Father is going to come around and give you grace and comfort and then pick you back up and walk you along again. Because as our memory verse said from last week, that's again for this week, he who started a good work in you will bring it along until the day of completion, right? So it's all his work happening in you, but that doesn't stop him from calling you up to walk in it. So he's going to say you got one job. And I think the reason this is so timely is because just like the church in Philippi, we live in a pluralistic society, meaning 
There are multiple views held by a lot of people about truth and reality. We call these worldviews. The reason we call them worldviews is because they're like lenses that you put over your eyes and you see everything in the world through those lenses. And we Christians have got to get comfortable living in a post-Christian America where there are a lot of different worldviews. We've got to get comfortable being uncomfortable in that. And we've got to adapt our methods of evangelism and discipleship to ensure we are seeing the world around us rightly as it is now and speaking the truth of Christ into the moment we're in. The Philippians were in a pre-Christian context, first church there, right? And they're trying to figure out the same thing. That's why I think this is so good for us. And here's, the, here's what Paul says their one job is. Uh, it's in verse 27. I'm going to show you that first and then show you how the whole passage is Paul kind of fleshing this out, okay? Here's what he says. It says, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is his one thing. I think it's the purpose of the whole letter to the Philippian church. Even though this is his favorite church, told you that last week, last week he loves them. He's seeing division crop up among them and they're getting distracted from their one thing, their main purpose. So he says in chapter one, right out of the gate, this is what you gotta be about living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what I'm gonna do today is I'm gonna show you a lot of the, all right, what does that look like to live that life? But first y'all, let's not forget what he's saying to live worthy of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is so valuable to him and must be so valuable to us, right? The gospel is our, it's the cornerstone of our faith. It's the crown jewel of our faith. It's the heartbeat of our faith. And it's an announcement. I love this. You know what, the thing that we love, we're saying live worthy of is a message, this gospel is an announcement of good news directed at sinners, people, us, who have lived our lives apart from God, who have chosen our own way over God's way, and as a result, we forfeited our standing with God, we traded it in for the fleeting pleasures of this world. And the announcement of the gospel to those sinners is that there's hope, there is hope. This incredible God has not abandoned you even though you've abandoned him. He still loves you and he has made a way for you to be reconciled to him. Our sin owed a debt of death, eternal separation from God, but God sent his son Jesus to pay our debt. So we sinners, we rejoice at this incredible news. Our debt has been paid. We didn't have to pay it. And not only that, when they killed him and buried him, Three days later, he got out of the grave. So those who identify with him and his forgiveness of their sins by him dying on the cross will live with him forever with God the Father in heaven. That's our hope. It is so valuable to us. Y'all, this is our heartbeat. It's our hope. So we who believe it, what Paul is saying is live worthy of that. And a lot of what I'm gonna tell you today is how to live worthy of it. it. This is an instructional letter, so you're gonna hear a lot if you stick with us throughout the series, a lot of instruction, but make no mistake, the only reason we talk about the how is because we are so captivated by Christ and what he's done for us. And if you're not captivated by Christ and who he is, man, you won't want to live the how. <laughs> In fact, I would discourage you from it. Deal with Christ first. Deal with him. 
Because we want to live this life, and Paul is instructing, live this life in light of how awesome and wonderful he is. The reason I'm so passionate about this, about living a life worthy of the gospel, is because passive, fear-riddled Christians need to be woken up and called up to the life worthy of that Christ. Our present context that God has placed us in is so concerned with not offending anyone that we Christians can adopt a posture that is more concerned with living a socially acceptable life than living a worthy life. And Paul's going to show and tell what a worthy life is. But it'll fall on deaf ears today if you do not believe he is worthy. Some of you need to go no further than that. You need to return to the treasure in a field. It's a one-sentence parable Jesus uses to talk about, or one verse to talk about the kingdom of God. Matthew 13, 44, and 35. Two different parables, each only one verse. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, and it's hidden in a field, and a man finds that treasure. He covers it back up, and in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has. He gives his life away so that he can buy that treasure, so that he can have that treasure. If you're not ready to give it all away because of how great and how much joy that treasure brings to you, the rest of this won't matter. So as I'm going through what a worthy life looks like and you find yourself not desiring it, go back to the field. Go back to Jesus. Consider him again. But for us who desire it, let me tell you, what it looks like, and please remember as I do, the Spirit of God, he who began a good work, will carry it through. I'm gonna walk through verses 12 through 30. I'm gonna show you six things, I think, that Paul says make a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, and before we jump into verse 12, just a reminder, we've got these uh, study guides for you at both of our campuses that are to be both like a midweek devotional as well as a place for you to put down sermon notes and just keep following along and reflections. What is God, what next step is God calling you to take? All right, that's what these are there for. They're in the lobby at both of our campuses, okay? All right, with that said, time to get into this thing. Verse 12, you guys ready? Let's go, let's go. All right. You will, um, my admonition to you is to keep getting louder in your yes to that as the uh, series goes on. All right, verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, I love that. It just reminds them constantly that we're a family. That what has happened to me, it's prison, has actually advanced the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I'm in Christ. Remember our context of the letter. This is where he's writing from, from prison. And what does he, he want them to know only a few sentences into his letter? He wants to update them on how the gospel's advancing. And he says, you might be surprised, but this imprisonment hasn't stifled the gospel. It has actually advanced the gospel. I love this man. Paul could be complaining. He's been unjustly imprisoned. I wonder what my letter would, the opening of my letter would be like. But no. He says, look, great news. I'm in prison and this has served to advance the gospel because God loves using the plans of humanity that are trying to stop his mission to be the very thing that aids in accomplishing his mission. He just gets more glory that way. This is the first mark of a life worthy of the gospel. I'm gonna just talk about these in terms of markings of a life worthy of the gospel. A life worthy of the gospel is 
fearlessly focused on the mission. Y'all, the Apostle Paul has tunnel vision. He's got some serious tunnel vision. Um, I used to play uh, baseball and soccer, like high school sports. Those are my things growing up, right? Um, five foot nine, that probably makes sense, right? Those, those are my sports, okay? So, but in baseball, I was a relief pitcher. And what my coach used to tell me is like, look, man, you got to have tunnel vision when you're pitching, especially in the late innings, close game, right? Everybody's going to be shouting, cheering and everything else. Tunnel vision, you know what that is? It's like where even the brim of your hat is set up so that it's just you and the catcher's mitt and nothing else. And if you can see it's just you and the catcher's mitt and nothing else, then you're going to be able to concentrate more. You're going to be able to do the thing because all the noise won't distract you from the one job that you have. Y'all, Paul has some awesome tunnel vision. He's just looking for opportunities to share Jesus. He knows that above all else, God has called and equipped and strengthened him for one task, advancing the gospel. That's his job. And as a result, he's focused. He's not focused on his circumstance in terms of like how that's bad for him. Instead, he sees his circumstance as a new opportunity. Oh man, now I get to preach to the Roman guard. And the whole Roman guard's hearing about Jesus because in prison, he's preaching the gospel. And not only are the Roman guards hearing about Jesus, his focus on the mission is inspiring everybody else, other believers. Watch this, verse 14. Most of the brothers, you can read that as like the believers, have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even to speak the word fearlessly. See, we're saying is, this principle, this idea, when I see you risk all you have to live a life worthy of the gospel, I get inspired to live a life worthy of the gospel. And we need to, I think the church needs to recapture the glorious risk-taking dare to speak the word fearlessly attitude of the early church. I, I kind of want to today revert a little bit to my middle school self and just say, hey, I, I dare you to go share Jesus, right? Remember how that used to be related to like, I dare you to like eat that, you know what I mean? Or I dare you to throw that peanut M&M at that rhinoceros in the zoo in Asheboro. I don't know, that's probably a very generic thing. Nobody actually did that. Um, I dare you to ask her to the dance, right? It was playful, yes, but in those moments that you were dared, something was triggered in you a little bit, right? You didn't want to be called what animal? A chicken. <laughs> Apparently the most cowardly animal in the animal kingdom. I don't know why we have reverted to that, right? But you didn't want to, uh, Marty McFly. What'd you call me? Did you call me a chicken? If you don't know that reference, um, that is for those of us that are from a glorious generation called the 80s and early 90s. And we, uh, you're now wearing our clothing. Hopefully you'll pick up some of our moves and stuff like that. All right. Listen, what'd you have to do in that moment? You had to summon up the courage. You had to, you had to dare. And you made a memory whether you succeeded or she shot you down again, right? And as we settle into adulthood, many of us become risk averse. We don't dare in most areas. And that risk averseness seeps over into our faith. And I think we need to receive this word from God and this example of the early church to dare again. We need to not dare over silly trifles that have no eternal consequence. As persecution looms on the horizon for the American church, and it does, we need not cower in fear or be distracted by internal squabbles that don't matter. We need to dare to speak the word of eternal life fearlessly. Let's be compassionate. Yes, fearless and compassionate are not at odds. 
They are complementary. I see this in our team of seven going to Nairobi, commissioning them today as they set out. I see fearless focus. They've counted the cost of what they're leaving and said the mission of God to speak the words of eternal life are worthy of my life. So we're saying goodbye to a, to a bunch of our friends today, but not a sad goodbye, a gospel goodbye. And those are different because gospel goodbyes have joy-filled anticipation. And their fearlessness should motivate us to dare. You have people in your building or on your street who need the word of eternal life that you have. Will you dare to give it to them? Will you dare to pray for them? Or are we, Mercy Church, are we too filled with fear to trust that God still has some work to do? It is, uh, is our faith so submerged in cowardice we won't even dare to speak the word of life. Oh, I just want us to dare for the gospel again. Dare to befriend those who are far from Christ. And the great news is, as we do, like I said, the Holy Spirit's the one doing all the work. It's not about your performance. It's about whether you're going to trust God for him to use you where he has placed you right now. Success in the mission is just taking the next step and seeing what God does with it. That's my admonition to you this week. Verse 15. Now, to be sure... Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach Christ, these ones do it out of goodwill. They preach Christ out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. And he's bringing up some division in the church. You're gonna kind of keep coming back to this throughout the letter. He says, there are some brothers in the church they actually are preaching a faithful gospel. These aren't false teachers. These are people preaching the faithful gospel, but with impure motives. These guys, verse 17, they have a selfish ambition problem. They want Paul's platform. They want his influence. They think things are actually better with Paul in prison. They're bent on keeping it that way. There's a whole sermon of preachers right here. And to any who are more concerned with people liking and subscribing to themselves than they are leading people to Jesus. Paul's not endorsing their pride or the sinful road is leading them down, but watch what he majors on. He could have majored on that, but what does he major on instead? Verse 18, what does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Not only am I falsely in prison, and I'm rejoicing in that because of the opportunity it's given me because I'm focused on the mission. But you know what? Even though these jabronis are preaching from bad motives, you know what? Christ is getting preached, and I'm rejoicing. His focus on the mission keeps distractions from becoming disasters in this church. I mean, again, he's going to address it. Their pride does create disunity but he's not focusing on that first. He's focusing first on the mission that leads him to rejoice because at the end of the day, the gospel's preached. If Paul's life was about Paul, there's no rejoicing. His rivals are holding him down and holding him back, but it's, his life is focused, tunnel vision on the mission. The mission's too important, so he keeps going. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, end of verse 18, now verse 19, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the spirit of Jesus Christ. You know, that's a quote of Job 13, 16, where Job says, even if I die, I'm saved. It's gonna lead to my salvation one way or the other. At the end of the day, I'm gonna be with the Lord. I'm gonna appear righteous before God in heaven 
And the way God sustains me to that moment is your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Focus. All the way to talking about whether he lives or dies. A worthy life is eager to honor Christ in life and in death. That's amazing. You know, he's in prison. He was thinking about being executed. And he's thinking, I just want Christ to be honored in how I die. God, give me courage to stay focused, even in my very last breath. This has been the cry of Christians at the frontier of missions for centuries, but will it be ours? This leads us right to the next mark of living worthy of the gospel. All right, those first verses up to verse 20. That's that focus on the mission. I want to read you verses 21 to 26 to show you this next marking. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I'm persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Look, as I read this, I can see it, man. A life worthy of the gospel, I don't know how else to say it, is motivated by heaven. To live is Christ, Christ is my identity. You get that? Identity is a very powerful word now in our day. How do you identify is now a question that our local mission field right here never had to ask before five years ago. Talk about that more in a minute, but Paul's identity is Christ. It's what he desires his life to be about. Even from a disgusting prison cell, he's living for Christ. That's his life, so much so that he longs for the full reunion that Christ has promised all believers, that to be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5, is to be present with Christ, and that is far better, to be present with Christ. Now, I don't want you to think that Paul is suicidal here. No, he, he's in prison. He's in a tough prison. And he has had a hard life as a Christian. I mean, you think back to, um, to verse 20. He says, my hopes that I'll not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, see that as always, Paul's like, I'm back here in prison, as always. Like, that's really what he's saying there. Here I am again, been in prison a lot, shipwrecked, beaten, ostracized. It's been a lot of it. It would make sense that he's feeling the draining experience of fighting to live for Christ. He's got a looming trial, a likely execution. It'd be easy to give up the fight and just let the body waste away. He's longing for heaven where there's no more pain or tears or prison or injustice. He feels he's needed to be here though and to encourage them. So he is, what he's doing in this writing is he's girding himself up. But listen, church, don't miss the very important point. Heaven is better, far better than life here. God has placed a longing in our hearts for eternity, Ecclesiastes 3, and eternity in heaven awaits believers when their life here ends. And we got to lift our eyes up a little bit more and get our hearts off the stuff of this world. Stuff is so temporary, so fragile. I mean, I thought about building this whole sermon around just this one verse. To live is blank. And I want you to answer that question. What is that for you? Because if your to live is anything other than Christ, 
it's too fragile. It's too fragile. It can be taken from you. I got a, a mentor of mine. He's constantly challenging me over the past year to solve for, here's the problem. He says, I need you to solve for this problem. What if Spence gets hit by a bus tomorrow? I'm like, hey man, I don't like that problem, you know? That's not nice. Um, let's figure out some other leadership challenge I can solve for, you know? But he's got a point because it could happen. And I gotta, am I living my life in a way that I'm modeling this for others? To live is Christ, to die is gain. When my heart is set on heaven, I'm a lot more open-handed with my life here. To live is Christ. So Jesus, what would you have me do until I see you face to face? That's a powerful prayer. That's a dangerous prayer. Jesus, to, to live is Christ. So what would you have me do until I see you face to face? I, I would actually caution you about praying that prayer unless you're ready for what God is going to tell you to do in response. Next two markings of a worthy life are in our anchor verse for today, verse 27. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. I'll be brief on this one, but it's very, very critical to the worthy life. You've got to know God's word if you're going to live worthy of the gospel. Like I'm showing you a few things here today from where? From God's word. God has, has revealed what the good life, what the worthy life looks like in his word. So what happens is the Bible becomes the wisdom that the Holy Spirit brings to life and brings to bear on your life. And you start to grow more into the image of Christ because you're being formed by the living and active word. You are a citizen of heaven, he says. That's a huge deal. So what I'm trying to tell you is get to know your citizenship. Get to know your new nation, your new country. Get familiar with all that it means to walk through this world as a citizen of another world. Short way to say it is a life worthy of the gospel is informed. It's an informed life informed by God's word. How do I live worthy of the gospel in my school when barely anyone ascribes to the same belief system I do? What does God say about race? What does God say about sex? What does God say about men and about women? What does God say about money? What does God say about the poor? A worthy life is only worthy if it's built on and informed by God's word. Listen to me. Otherwise, you, will, you might have as a Christian a passionate life, but not a worthy life. And I see plenty of Christians passionate, but uninformed. And that's not worthy it's, it's immature, which means it's filled with good intention, but it's off in its application. So you might find yourself passionately singing along with God's church, but then unintentionally living in a way that actually defames Christ in your life. It's like, um, you know, I've told you this before. If I want to get down to the beach and I want to ride on 74 East all the way down to the beach from where I live, that'd be the way to go to the, the Carolina coast, right? And I have every intent to go to the beach. But I get on 74 going west. Well, despite the best of my intentions, I'm not going to end up at the beach. You understand? Like, that's what I'm saying. You've got to be informed by God's word and his direction for as he calls you to live. So engage God's word. Now, there's some great help for you on this. It's the next one. He keeps going. Then... Whether I come to see you, still in verse 27, or I'm absent. See, he wants to see him because he's kind of like a, um, 
He feels like, I don't know whether it's a coach or like the captain of the team, he wants to come in and encourage everybody. When he gets there, they're gonna be you know, hyped about it. But whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I'll hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. I wanna translate this to our day. A life worthy of the gospel is actively united with the local church. See, there's a battle metaphor at work here that Paul's bringing up. Standing firm and contending, standing firm and contending. That's fighting language, battle, battle language. In one spirit and together. There's this reference here to the Romans who they had this, uh, Roman soldiers had a battle formation called a phalanx that both Paul and his readers would know about, right? A group of soldiers moving together in a way that gave them more protection and more success than if they were each just walking individually. The idea would be that like my shield's out in front of me and you, and I'm defending me and you from those that are coming in front of us. Your shield is over top of me and you. So I'm counting on you to hold your shield up, preventing arrows from coming in on us. And then there's a third dude who's got a spear and he's sticking that spear, he doesn't have a shield. And he's sticking that spear between our two shields and he's counting on both of us to protect him. And we all move together, right? Paul is calling for this kind of active unity in the body, contending, making a case for the faith. And we gotta do that together. We gotta contend for the faith as a local body of believers. And I get that one of the things this means that I was convicted on this week is that we gotta do a better job as your pastors to equip you to contend for the faith in a pluralistic world. I know that there are other ideas contending for your mind and your heart, contending for the throne of the public square. In fact, today is the first Sunday in something known as Pride Month, a month where a counter-biblical worldview is contending for the throne of truth in our age. Now this worldview underneath the things that we see is contending that self, not God, is on the throne of truth. Therefore, truth is relative to the individual. So the individual decides on gender and sexuality, not God. And the unforgivable sin in that worldview is to claim that there is an absolute truth because it is tantamount to insurrection. You're threatening the throne. So what does that mean? That means we need one another here in the local church. We need to be encouraged by one another who share this worldview that God is the one on the throne. We need to be prayed for. Some of you are getting pressure at work to conform to and accept and adopt this worldview. Middle and high school students, you will be increasingly bullied and ostracized for holding to a biblical sexual ethic and not conforming to this agenda. I promise you. Listen, brothers and sisters in our church who experience same-sex attraction, I know this is a difficult time for you. Because the worldview out there says, why would you deny who you are? And God says, whoa, you are not your desires. In Christ, your identity is son or daughter of God. And you are brother and sister in here. And Jesus is worthy of your singleness as you look to live a life pleasing to him, not conforming to the age. And I know you need your church right now. And you're wondering, as you crucify your desires with Christ, is the church going to crucify you? And the answers are resounding no. We're going to contend with you to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need each other more than ever because contending expends a lot of effort. Sometimes we get wounded and we need to be healed. Sometimes we feel alone and just a text or a call or a meal with a friend in Christ goes so far to restore our souls. 
And Paul tells us the next mark of the life worthy of the gospel because it talks about our approach as we contend together. Verse 28, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. A life worthy of the gospel walks by courageous faith, not fear. Now, let me tell you what this means, okay? First, by telling you what it doesn't mean. This does not mean we shout and decry and get angry at our opponents. Those contending, when Paul saw my opponents, those contending for a different truth. Fear gets angry and shouts, okay? Counselors will tell you why, because anger is a secondary emotion. People who are scared express that fear as anger. But because we are in Christ, we are secure. We're secure in who we are in Christ. We are secure in what we are contending for. We do not fear others. What do we do? We love them. We pray for them. We walk across the room and introduce ourselves and build a friendship. We show hospitality. We do what Jesus would do. And listen, the cultural worldview upon us says that to love me, you have to accept everything I think and believe as good and valid and true. That is a very well-packaged lie designed to silence any claims at absolute truth. But in response, we say, no, 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 no. You can both love and disagree with someone, even when the disagreement is as deep as a worldview. So we don't hide or compromise our convictions. We walk by faith. We ask God each morning, God, show me when to speak, show me when not to. God, I need you today to help me to do what Jesus told me to do. Love those who, even those who persecute you. My prayer for Mercy Church in the month of June, that it would be a stereotype shattering church to the pride community. You'll find we hold to the orthodox sexual ethic that the church has held for 2,000 years, but that you're also 1,000% welcome here and will lovingly help you take your next step with Jesus. Because being a disciple isn't about conforming to us. It's about submitting to Jesus and doing what he says. No one here is afraid of your past or present. We're all sinners, which means we all have stories, man. God graciously tore down our old worldviews and showed us his better, more loving way. May you find Jesus here, and we'll just walk with you as he does his work, which leads right to the last point. Verse 29, it has been granted to you. It has been, I need you to hear the words. It has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you're engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. A life worthy of the gospel embraces suffering for the gospel. Now, let's be clear. This is a specific kind of suffering. All of us suffer. And in any suffering, we should lean into Christ because we're suffering as he suffered. He will help us in our time of need. But look closely at verse 29. Paul says, two things have been granted to you. And granted means given from God on Christ's behalf because Christ wants this for you. First, to believe in him. Your belief in Jesus is a gift from Jesus. If you believe the gospel, then right now in your heart, you should just thank him for that because your belief is a gift. It was just like what, what he told them when he saw what we saw last week. He who began the good work in you. He began it. This is why Christians are so marked by love, by thankfulness, because we have no claim on our standing with God because of something we did. None of us. He did it. 
He saved me. He granted me faith. And not only did he give me the gift of belief, he gave me the gift of suffering for him. A specific kind of suffering that is a suffering brought on because you choose to publicly identify with Christ in a world that is hostile to Christ. You will suffer for saying Christ is the only way. When you live as citizens of heaven, worthy of the gospel, the world will despise and reject you. These aren't my words. Jesus said it to his disciples in Matthew 24. You'll be despised and rejected for my name's sake. What I'm saying is that when you're mistreated, whether it is physically beaten, publicly shamed, professionally blackballed, disavowed by your family, when this happens because you've chosen the way of Jesus, there is a humble, deep rejoicing available to you because you're being allowed to participate in the very sufferings of Christ. This is the true way of Christ. Are you ready to live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ? There's a well-known missionary named Adoniram Judson. Um, I want to read you a very brief letter uh, that he sent to the father of the woman he wanted to marry. Wanted to marry this woman, knew he would have to ask her hand, as was the custom of the day. And this is what he says. He's ready. To, he's going on the mission field. Here's what he says. I have to now ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall be redound to her savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Are you ready to live a life worthy of the gospel? Even if God calls you to be open-handed with your own children? Are you ready to raise them as arrows to be shot out into the heart of the enemy? A generation from now, for the sake of Christ? Will you embrace suffering for the gospel as a gift from God? That you will be made more into the likeness of Christ as a result of it? Now here's the the great news. None of us will do any of these things fully. We will fail all along the way. And every time we do, every time we sin and turn back to our old ways, God is there to remind us <laughs> that he loves us, that he has forgiven us in Christ, and we can stand back up through him who picks us up and walk forward again. That is a worthy life. One so, so in awe of this gospel that what else could we do but give our lives to it? And even as we mess up, be overwhelmed by his forgiveness and turn back again and again. We're going to take communion next. It's gonna be the next thing we do in our service. And as we do, that's, I want your heart to be set on for a moment before we actually take the elements. 
just to reflect on, is he really worthy to you? Are you ready to give him your whole life? The walking up to the table where it represents him giving his life for you. Man, walk up to that table as best as you are able with a prayer that says, God, whatever you would have for me, I'm gonna live my life worthy of this right here, of you who gave your life for me. I'm gonna pray for you and then at Northeast, um, Pastor Rashard, the team there will direct you guys in taking communion and I'll direct us here. Let's pray together.